Well, hello, my name is Luke Phillips. I'm a senior correspondent at Glimpse from the Globe, and we are joined today for our podcast series and interview series by the president of the Los Angeles World Affairs Council and the CEO of the World Los Angeles World Affairs Council, Mr. Terry McCarthy. Uh, Mr. Terry McCarthy is an acclaimed journalist who's traveled all over the world reporting on various events and various trends in world affairs, and we are, uh, we are over-honored to be joined by him here today. Mr. McCarthy, welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. So, uh, so the first thing I wanted to talk with you about in this uh, in this discussion was uh, the the trends facing the world of 2016 and 2017 and beyond, uh, with a new presidential administration coming in. What are, say, the top three things that the next president of the United States should be watching for? Not only in terms of international security, but also in terms of global development and uh, the general directions the world is heading. I would say the three biggest macro trends that the next president will have to look at around the world would be one, um, a growing refugee problem. We now have the largest number of refugees ever since Second World War, about 60 million refugees around the world with a lot of resulting problems, including a, a very serious threat to the uh, stability of the European Union as, as refugees come up from the Middle East, as you know. I think the second uh, big macro issue that uh, will concern the president is a slowdown in global trade and a potential slowdown in the world economy, uh, which is very worrying uh, for a number of reasons, not least of which is that that will then have further impact on conflict areas, uh, on or further impact on, on flows of, of migrants, and gets us back to our first issue. And I think the third big issue that the president will, will have to look at is probably the single most foreign policy relationship that we will have is with China. Uh, this is the second largest economy in the world. It's growing quickly. It's still trying to find its feet in terms of its foreign policy and its security policy. I think the United States needs to be very resolute there. We need to work with China, not against China, but we need to set some rules. And so I think those would be the three main overpowering issues that the president will so let's take those uh, those three issues and pick them apart one by one, starting with the migration crisis. Uh, now, for our readers and listeners, uh, the uh, Mr. McCarthy has provided the statistic that there's something like 60 million people displaced in the various conflict zones around the Middle East, uh, Africa, and these various regions of the world. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, that's creating stability problems not only in those regions, but in the regions where refugees are fleeing to, namely the European Union. Um, how do we manage those if there is no uh, prospect that those the wars in, say, South Sudan, Syria, Libya will be ending anytime soon? How do we best manage the flows of people coming out of those crisis zones? I think I'd have to turn the question around. I think there is an imperative to end these wars. We cannot continue to house tens of millions of refugees uh, indefinitely. We've seen uh, the problems that that always brings up when you have long-term refugee populations, the Afghan population, Pakistan, the Palestinian population across the Middle East. It's not a, it's not a, a satisfactory solution. And the, clearly the, the most pressing problem right now is the war in Syria, which is outrageous, horrendous, and has already cost maybe 400,000 lives, maybe more. People have almost lost count. Is this an easy war to stop? Absolutely not. Uh, it will require some very uh, high-level and 
very tenacious diplomacy, which will have to include the Russians, will have to include the Iranians, will have to include Turkey and the various other Middle Eastern countries surrounding uh, Syria, that this war has to end. Uh, the next president cannot allow this to go on. It's, 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 uh, it's causing so many other problems down the road, including the, the refugee problem, but also it's breeding a, a very uh, violent group of, of jihadis who, even if they do get kicked out of Syria, and it looks like ISIS is, is, is on the back foot right now, they will go somewhere else and start uh, attacking other uh, Western targets. Um, so this war has to stop. I think also the Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, has, has made it clear that he needs more support from the member nations to at least pay for the interim costs of these refugees and their children. There are some horrible statistics about the very small percentage of these kids who are going to school. And of course, you don't get your childhood back. If the war ends in 10 years, you can't go back to first grade if you're already in the 10th grade age group. So uh, there clearly is a need for more resources to pay the temporary costs, but it should be seen very much as temporary costs. We, we cannot think that we can just deal with the wars by dealing with the refugees. It has to come the other way. Now, uh, it's interesting you bring that up because there's been much discussion, not so much on the wars in Africa, but especially on the, more, on the wars in the Muslim world, uh, over whether the focus should be state building and nation building, whether the focus should be on rooting out terrorist organizations as they crop up, uh, or whether it should be focused on other issues, uh, for example, propping up the local power bases like the Kurds and other, other groups that are, have proven themselves capable of uh, stability without necessarily backing up uh, the state actors in, say, Syria and Iraq. Um, now, would you say that uh, that it is imperative that we uh, not only build up a political order in states like Syria, South Sudan, uh, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, but also work on the foundations of the social and economic order, uh, perhaps not as the United States, perhaps as the international community, um, in a much more vigorous fashion than we have up to this point in order to bring some semblance of stability once the peace has been achieved? Well, again, I think it's the other way around. I think you cannot have peace until you have a stable state order. Now, uh, if we look at Syria in particular, uh, because that's the most uh, um, egregious war at the moment, what that looks like, I think, will be up to the negotiators. I suspect that the Russians and the Iranians will insist that Assad sticks around for some time, maybe for an interim period. Uh, I think it's in our interest to have a stable state structure there. Uh, frankly, there's nobody with clean hands in this conflict right now. Uh, do we like Assad? No. Um, but what are the alternatives? So I think at some point we're going to have to uh, approach Syria as, a, as an entire country. I don't think it makes sense to try and section it off and say, right, we'll have a peaceful Kurdish area, but then genocide you know, across the Kurdish border in, in a neighboring province. Uh, we uh, may not like the borders of Syria or Lebanon or Iraq or whatever that come out of a, a colonial and post-Ottoman uh, regime, but that's the they are the borders we have. And to try and tear that up and, and recreate a new Middle East, I think it's beyond the power of anyone right now. So I think our priority has to be to get to some uh, stable, uh, at least non-violent uh, governmental status quo, um, at which point we can then talk about economic aid and whatever, whatever, you know, bringing back refugees and so on and so forth. But until you have a stable government, nothing else is going to work. That's, uh, that's an interesting point. And I, I'd like to get back to the question of whether or not the borders of the Middle East and even parts of Africa 
uh, can be maintained in their current uh, in the current status. But I'd like to move to the next great issue that you mentioned. Uh, the global economy, the flow of trade across international borders, and the impending slowdown uh, in that in that flow. Now, uh, there's been a rise of nationalist sentiments across the Western world, most vociferously, but also to some degree uh, in Russia, in China, in India, in uh, in the the quote unquote BRIC countries and other countries around the world. Um, is that the reason, uh, or is that uh, any kind of a reason why? Uh, that uh, why uh, why the global slowdown in trade is happening because nations are focusing more socially and economically on their domestic economies, or are there other reasons that have more to do with market forces? I don't think that the slowdown in global trade is a product of nationalism. I think it's a product of some uh, faltering economic systems, um, starting off with China. It's quite clear that the boom in the commodities trade uh, was fueled uh, to a large extent by the boom of China's economy. And now that China's economy has, has slowed down, uh, all those commodity exporters starting in Africa and then Australia and then South America have really felt the pain, copper, iron, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that the issue there is not so much national. It is what is a functioning economic model for particularly China to follow, and they haven't yet found it. Uh, their old model of a uh, cheap manufacturing base that exports uh, to the rest of the world um, is no longer tenable, either for them, uh, because their manufacturing wages go up, nor for the world, because the world no longer needs that, <laughs> that level of, of exports. Uh, so I think that the big challenge there for China is to, as we know, to change its economy from an export-driven uh, investment boom to, to domestic investment and uh, consumer demand. And is that the model that developing countries around the world should be following as a general rule, or should there should uh, should say uh, Uganda, Papua New Guinea, uh, these other countries uh, uh, still take the classic developmental model whereby you industrialize uh, and create some value added for the global economy, and then trans uh, transfer that into a middle income country uh, kind of per uh, purchasing economy? Uh, what uh, what should the people at the World Bank and the uh, and other economic advisors around the world be advising developing nations to do uh, to do for their economies to become productive members of of the global economy in a way that can keep the economy stable rather than descending into a mercantilist set of competing states? Well, I think you go with what you get. You go with what you've got, right? So China has already got a approaching a middle income. Uh, economy and, and for that reason they now have a, an emerging middle class who can indeed absorb a large amount of consumer goods. Uh, Uganda is not there yet and uh, a large number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa are not yet there, with the exceptions perhaps of South Africa and increasingly uh, Nigeria. Um, so I think that uh, for the poorer countries they have to go through a stage of exporting and starting out with commodities and then perhaps with, with uh, some value-added goods. Um, but clearly, in the long run, it's simply the math simply does not add up if you have uh, 150 countries trying to export their way out of economic problems and five or six rich countries taking those exports as imports. That math simply will not continue to add up. And so the end point has to be every country needs at some point to develop its own you know, domestic demand and consumer base. Which, of course, would require some international coordination between the economies of not only the major countries, but even the 
uh, the smaller countries around the world too. Which brings us to the the very last um, the very last great challenge you, you mentioned: the rise of China and uh, China's uh, transition into a quote unquote responsible stakeholder, as we like to call it in uh, U.S. defense circles. Uh, how do you see that? relationship, the U.S.-China relationship in particular, but also the relationship of China to the world, China's role in the world uh, moving forward. Is China going to become the global hyperpower the way the United States was? Is China going to be one of many? Or what do you see uh, happening and how do we get there? I think it's very hard to know what the future holds for China. Uh, basically, there are two scenarios. One scenario is that the country... Uh, is successful in its economic reforms and perhaps loosens up some of its, uh, its uh, political restrictions and China becomes a thriving, uh, technologically sophisticated uh, economic superpower. The other scenario is that China fails to reform its economy, um, the population becomes more disgruntled and the supremacy of the Communist Party of China at some point is challenged, and then, goodness knows, we could see some serious chaos in China. Or some mix of, of those two scenarios, uh, which is probably the most likely scenario, where they do some reform, but not enough, and, and things are not entirely satisfactory, but it doesn't fall apart. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball. But I, I think that for the United States, uh, it's important that we engage China at every level. Uh, there are 300 million Chinese learning English, there are probably 30,000 Americans learning Chinese. It would be nice to see that balance slightly rectified. Uh, we don't send enough students to China. Uh, I think our president's uh, ambitions for a rebalance to Asia has been perhaps overly focused just on the military portion of that. Uh, clearly, the uh, Navy is going to have 60% of its fleet in the Pacific by 2020, which is, which is the plan. I don't think that's been followed up sufficiently um, on the diplomatic or the, on, on the trade side. Uh, we have tried with the TPP and, and failed so far to, to get Congress to back that. Uh, China, at some point, has indicated it might even want to join the TPP. So, you know, there are opportunities there that we could pursue with a bit more uh, uh, foresight on, on, on the part of our policymakers. Uh, but China, you know, China has a long historical memory uh, and requires some tact and some sensitivity. We, we cannot be seen to be dictating to China. They don't uh, appreciate that. Uh, by the same token, uh, we stand for a certain set of rules and a way of doing business, trade, and so on and so forth. Uh, China often has run uh, foul of those rules, and I think it, it's incumbent upon the United States, not just for our own purposes, but for China and its position in the world to make it clear that you, you need to stick to the rules. You cannot just rip off patents, you cannot steal intellectual property, uh, you need to stick to the rules. Otherwise, it will rebound badly on them, ultimately, as well. So I think the United States has to engage China. I think it has to be firm without being, uh, uh, without being seen to be condescending. Um, but we must insist that there are certain rules along, which, which have guaranteed, frankly, the rise of not just China, but all of East Asia. They have benefited enormously from the rules-based trading regime that has, the United States has underwritten since the Second World War. Um, we need to see that uh, system uh, continue, otherwise uh, it becomes very chaotic and, and there are more losers than winners. 
Well, Mr. McCarthy, it's fascinating hearing your perspectives on this. Some of the other people we've interviewed at, uh, through Glimpse so far, including uh, Robert C. O'Brien and Robert D. Kaplan, have expressed a very much more uh, how does America navigate through the tumultuous storms of international security and maintain her own interests in an evolving world, uh, as opposed to your more uh, how do we maintain a rules-based international order where we cooperate towards achieving solutions to common problems facing humanity as a whole in a transnational way. Uh, and it's interesting to hear that perspective because with, the, with uh, especially the rise of, uh, of Russian aggression in the, in the Ukraine and with uh, continued episodes between American and Chinese and various other Asian ships in the South and East China Seas, and especially with the, with the various acts of terrorism around the world, it seems that uh, most foreign policy thinkers would gravitate towards the O'Brien-Kaplan mold and think about, okay, what does the American president need to know to keep the American people safe, rather than what do we need to do to maintain a steady world order? Can you explain uh, to our listeners why it's important that uh, it, perhaps we follow that first model, but it's also important to keep the world order and uh, global solutions for humanity's problems mold in mind at the same time? I don't discount the importance of maintaining United States security. I would just point out that your chances of being killed by terrorists in the United States are less than your chances of falling and hitting yourself in your bathtub. I think the media does tend to overplay this, which is not to discount the horrors that we've seen in the Middle East. But the United States is a relatively safe country to live in, um, and notwithstanding the, 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 the small terror attacks we've seen, uh, this is not something that uh, I think we should uh, lose too much sleep about. Um, I think there are bigger forces at play uh, in the Middle East in particular that require an American involvement, uh, but I do not think that uh, we, for example, should be sending uh, you know, the 101st Airborne into Syria right now to solve their problems. There, there are limits to, to what we can and what we should uh, get involved in. Um, I think that uh, in the uh, Asia-Pacific arena, uh, it is absolutely right that the United States should maintain a strong military presence. The head of the Pacific Command, Admiral Harris, spoke to us recently, my group recently, um, and he uh, oversees 380,000 personnel, most of them military, some civilian. Uh, that is enormous commitment, uh, spans the Pacific and the Indian Oceans, and they are welcomed by pretty much every country in the region, certainly with the exception of North Korea, I could argue that to a certain extent even the Chinese uh, see at least at some level some merit in having uh, a U.S. Uh, security blanket to uh, ensure that, that trade can continue peacefully and that you know, angry neighbors don't start attacking each other. Um, so I think that there is certainly a, an enormously important role for the uh, U.S. security apparatus to, to maintain its presence around the world. But in the end of the day, you don't solve problems with guns. You solve problems with talking. And uh, when the shooting is over, then the talking begins. So I think that my view is, is that in the, in the end of the day, it's going to be our, our statecraft rather than our military power that will, will solve the, the most keenest problems in the world. Well, I hope, uh, I hope more of our policymakers bear this perspective in mind as we navigate through an increasingly uncertain world. Uh, Mr. McCarthy, thank you very much for sitting down with me and speaking for this interview. I appreciate it a lot. We over at Glimpse appreciate it a lot, and uh, we look forward to working with you again soon. So thank you very much. Nice talking to you. Thank you.